Chapter 43 of Mr. Scarborough's Family. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mr. Scarborough's Family by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 43 Mr. Prosper is Visited by His Lawyers. Mr. Prosper had not been in good spirits at the time at which Mountjoy Scarborough had visited him. He had received some time previously a letter from Mr. Gray, as described in a previous chapter, and had also known exactly what proposal had been made by Mr. Gray to Messrs. Soames and Simpson. An equal division of the lady's income, one half to go to the lady herself, and the other half to Mr. Prosper, with an annuity of two hundred and fifty pounds out of the estate for the lady, if Mr. Prosper should die first. These were the terms which had been offered to Miss Thoroughbung, with the object of inducing her to become the wife of Mr. Prosper. But to these terms Miss Thoroughbung had declined to accede, and had gone about the arrangement of her money matters in a most precise and business-like manner. A third of her income she would give up, since Mr. Prosper desired it, but more than that she would owe it to herself and her friends to decline to abandon. The payment for the fish and the champagne must be omitted from any agreement on her part. As to the ponies and their harness and the pony carriage, she would supply them. The ponies and the carriage would be indispensable to her happiness but the maintenance of the ponies must be left to Mr. Prosper. As for the dower, she could not consent to accept less than four hundred or five hundred if no house was to be provided. She thought that seven hundred and fifty would be little enough if there were no children, as in that case there was no heir for whom Mr. Prosper was especially anxious. But as there probably would be children, Miss Thoroughbung thought that this was a matter to which Mr. Prosper would not give much consideration. Throughout it all she maintained a beautiful equanimity, and made two or three efforts to induce Mr. Prosper to repeat his visit to Marmaduke Lodge. She herself wrote to him, saying that she thought it odd, considering their near alliance, he should not come and see her. Once she said that she had heard that he was ill, and offered to go to Buston Hall to visit him. All this was extremely distressing to a gentleman of Mr. Prosper's delicate feelings. As to the proposals in regard to money, the letters from Soames and Simpson to Gray and Barry, all of which came down to Buston Hall, seemed to be innumerable. With Soames and Simpson, Mr. Prosper declined to have any personal communication. But every letter from the Buntingford attorneys was accompanied by a farther letter from the London attorneys, till the correspondence became insupportable. Mr. Prosper was not strong enough to stick firmly to his guns, as planted for him by Messrs. Gray and Barry. He did give way in some matters, and hence arose renewed letters which nearly drove him mad. Messrs. Soames and Simpson's client was willing to accept four hundred pounds as the amount of the dower without reference to the house, and to this Mr. Prosper yielded. He did not much care about any heir as yet unborn, 
and felt by no means so certain in regard to children as did the lady. But he fought hard about the ponies. He could not undertake that his wife should have ponies. That must be left to him as master of the house. He thought that a pair of carriage horses for her use would be sufficient. He had always kept a carriage and intended to do so. She might bring her ponies if she pleased, but if he thought well to part with them, he would sell them. He found himself getting deeper and deeper into the quagmire till he began to doubt whether he should be able to extricate himself unmarried if he were anxious to do so. And all the while there came affectionate little notes from Miss Thoroughbung, asking after his health and recommending him to what to take, till he entertained serious thoughts of going to Cairo for the winter. Then Mr. Barry came down to see him after Mountjoy had made his visit. It was now January, and the bargaining about the marriage had gone on for more than two months. The letter which he had received from the squire of Tretton had moved him, but he had told himself that the property was his own, and that he had a right to enjoy it as he liked best. Whatever might have been Harry's faults in regard to that midnight affair, it had certainly been true that he had declined to hear the sermons. Mr. Prosper did not exactly mention the sermons to himself, but there was present to him a feeling that his heir had been willfully disobedient, and the sermons, no doubt, had been the cause. When he had read the old squire's letter, he did not as yet wish to forgive his nephew. He was becoming very tired of his courtship, but in his estimation the wife would be better than the nephew. Though he had been much put out by the precocity of that embrace, there was nevertheless a sweetness about it which lingered on his lips. Then Mountjoy had come down, and he had answered Mountjoy very stoutly. A lie! he had exclaimed. Did he tell a lie? he had asked, as though all must be over with a young man who had once allowed himself to depart from the rigid truth. Mountjoy had made what excuse he could, but Mr. Prosper had been very stern. On the very day after Mountjoy's coming, Mr. Barry came. His visit had been arranged, and Mr. Prosper was, with great care, prepared to encounter him. He was wrapped in his best dressing gown, and Matthew had shaved him with the greatest care. The girls over at the parsonage declared that their uncle had sent into Buntingford for a special pot of pomatum. The story was told to Joe Thoroughbung in order that it might be passed on to his aunt, and no doubt it did travel, as it was intended. But Miss Thoroughbung cared nothing for the pomatum with which the lawyer from London was to be received. It would be very hard to laugh her out of her lover while the title deeds to Buston held good. But Mr. Prosper had felt that it would be necessary to look his best so that his marriage might be justified in the eyes of the lawyer. Mr. Barry was shown into the book room at Buston, in which Mr. Prosper was seated, ready to receive him. The two gentlemen had never before met each other, and Mr. Prosper did no doubt assume something of the manner of an aristocratic owner of land. He would not have done so had Mr. Gray come in his partner's place, but there was a humility about Mr. Barry on an occasion such as the present, which justified a little pride on the part of the client. "'I am sorry to give you the trouble to come down, Mr. Barry,' he said. "'I hope the servant has shown you your room.' 
I shall be back in London today, Mr. Prosper, thank you. I must see these lawyers here, and when I have received your final instructions, I will return to Buntingford. Then Mr. Prosper pressed him much to stay. He had quite expected, he said, that Mr. Barry would have done him the pleasure of remaining at any rate one night at Buston. But Mr. Barry settled the question by saying that he had not brought a dress coat. Mr. Prosper did not care to sit down to dinner with guests who did not bring their dress coats. And now, continued Mr. Barry, what final instructions are we to give to Soames and Simpson? I don't think much of Mrs. Soames and Simpson. I believe they have the name of being honest practitioners. I dare say, I do not in the least doubt it, but they are people to whom I am not at all desirous of entrusting my own private affairs. Messrs. Soames and Simpson have not, I think, a large county business. I had no idea that Miss Thoroughbung would have put this affair into their hands. Just so, Mr. Prosper, but I suppose it was necessary for her to employ somebody. There has been a good deal of correspondence. Indeed there has, Mr. Barry. It has not been our fault, Mr. Prosper. Now what we have got to decide is this. What are the final terms which you mean to propose? I think, sir, the time has come when some final terms should be suggested. Just so, final terms must be what you call the very last. That is, when they have once been offered, you must, you must, just stick to them, Mr. Prosper. Exactly, Mr. Barry. That is what I intend. There is nothing I dislike so much as this haggling about money, especially with a lady. Miss Thoroughbung is a lady for whom I have the highest possible esteem. That's of course. For whom, I repeat, I have the highest possible esteem. But she has friends who have their own ideas as to money. The brewery in Buntingford belongs to them and they are very worthy people. I should explain to you, Mr. Barry, as you are my confidential adviser, that were I about to form a matrimonial alliance in the heyday of my youth, I should probably not have thought of connecting myself with the Thoroughbungs. As I have said before, they are most respectable people, but they do not exactly belong to that class in which I should, under those circumstances, have looked for a wife. I might probably have ventured to ask for the hand of the daughter of some county family. But years have slipped by me, and now, wishing in middle life to procure for myself the comfort of wedded happiness, I have looked about and have found no one more likely to give it me than Miss Thoroughbung. Her temper is excellent and her person pleasing. Mr. Prosper, as he said this, thought of the kiss which had been bestowed upon him. Her wit is vivacious, and I think that upon the whole she will be desirable as a companion. She will not come to this house empty-handed, but of her pecuniary affairs you already know so much that I need perhaps tell you nothing farther. But though I am exceedingly desirous to make this lady my wife, and am, I may say, warmly attached to her, there are certain points which I cannot sacrifice. Now about the ponies... I think I understand about the ponies. She may bring them on trial. I'm not to be bound to keep any ponies at all. There are a pair of carriage horses which must suffice. On second thoughts, she had better not bring the ponies. 
This decision had at last come from some little doubt on his mind as to whether he was treating Harry justly. And four hundred pounds is the sum fixed on for her jointure. She is to have her own money for her own life, said Mr. Prosper. That's a matter of course. Don't you think that, under these circumstances, four hundred will be quite enough? Quite enough, if you ask me, but we must decide. Four hundred it shall be. And she is to have two-thirds of her own money for her own expenses during your life? asked Mr. Barry. I don't see why she should want six hundred a year for herself. I don't indeed. I am afraid it will only lead to extravagance. Barry assumed a look of despair. Of course, as I have said so, I will not go back for my word. She shall have two-thirds. But about the ponies my mind is quite made up. There shall be no ponies at Buston. I hope you understand that, Mr. Barry. Mr. Barry said that he did understand it well, and then, folding up his papers, prepared to go, congratulating himself that he would not have to pass a long evening at Buston Hall. But before he went, and when he had already put on his greatcoat in the hall, Mr. Prosper called him back to ask him one farther question, and for that purpose he shut the door carefully and uttered his words in a whisper. Did Mr. Barry know anything of the life and recent adventures of Mr. Henry Ansley? Mr. Barry knew nothing, but he thought that his partner, Mr. Gray, knew something. He had heard Mr. Gray mention the name of Mr. Henry Ansley. Then, as he stood there, enveloped in his great coat, with his horse standing in the cold, Mr. Prosper told him much of the story of Harry Ansley, and asked him to induce Mr. Gray to write and tell him what he thought of Harry's conduct. End of chapter 43 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina